This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You are an old man who thinks in terms of nations and peoples. There are no nations. There are no peoples. There is only one holistic system of systems. One vast and immane, interwoven, interacting, multivariate, multinational dominion of dollars. And you have meddled with the primal forces of nature. And you will atone. Everybody knows that the dice are loaded. Everybody rolls with their fingers crossed. Everybody knows the war is over. Everybody knows the good guys lost. Everybody knows the fight was fixed. The poor stay poor, the rich get rich, that's how it goes. Everybody knows. Live from Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Everybody knows that and of course, just a few weeks until the Conspiracy Show television version debuts on Vision TV, Friday, Feb 18th at 11 p.m. And uh, a, a little update, they'll be running back-to-back episodes. So every Friday night, beginning Feb 18th, there'll be a two half-hour episodes from 11 to 11.30. And then the second one will air, of course, 11.30 to midnight. And uh, so on and so forth. So we are um, uh, the uh, the conspiracy show television production team. Very busy. We're getting ready to head down to uh, Arizona in um, well about a month, uh, a month exactly actually, uh, for the big uh, international UFO congress taking place in Scottsdale, and uh, all sorts of people are going to be there um, that uh, we need to interview. Uh, not only for this uh, thirteen episodes, but uh, looking ahead, of course. Always, always on the road looking for great interviews and great stories. I also want to bring to your attention that on Friday, January the 28th, I will be at the Conspiracy Culture Store. Conspiracy Culture, our good friends Patrick and Kadena, uh, 1696 Queen Street West, which is near Roncesvalles. And I'll be there to sign uh, copies of my new CD, Strange Planet Volume 2, and if you want to uh, get on board for that, and I'd love to meet you, uh, and uh, it's it's always it's one of those rare op- opportunities for me to get out and uh, uh, mingle with uh, my radio family. Uh, you'll need to contact Patrick at uh, the store. So just go through the website www.conspiracyculture.com and give him a call at the shop. And just there's no charge, of course, but he uh, space is limited, so you just need to uh, sort of. Uh, register that you're you're, you're going to be there, and he'll put you on the list. And again, that is uh, uh, Friday, 
January the 28th from 7 to 9 p.m. And as an added uh, little uh, bonus, uh, I'll be joined by a couple of uh, a gentlemen from the TV production, producer Ron Craig and our director, Jalal Murray. What a savior this fellow is, a real earth angel. Uh, but Jalal and Ron will be along uh, for the ride, and they are going to help me sort of uh, present a little trailer, a sneak preview of the conspiracy television show for you that uh, are in attendance. And we'll just give you a, some uh, inside uh, information on uh, what's going on with the TV show and, uh, and, and, and all that. A little later in the program, Anthony Carr will be with us, the world's most documented psychic. This is the guy that predicted uh, 9-11 and the murder of John Paul I. Murder, you say? Well, uh, the, the, uh, the fact that they were, they were going to find the Titanic and, and uh, on and on it goes. Uh, an amazing uh, uh, record he has. Uh, but he's also an astrologer of, uh, of, uh, of note. And uh, many of you are probably as perplexed as I am as this announcement that came out of Minnesota, an astronomer announcing that they found a 13th sign for the Zodiac, and uh, that means I'm no longer a Capricorn, I'm a Sagittarius, or you're no longer a Virgo, you're this, and so what does it all mean? Anthony Carr will be here to sort that out. Uh, coming up at midnight, John Moore, they call him the Liberty Man, from uh, the Republic Broadcast Network, a former Green Beret, and uh, he was on the program, oh, Gosh, it's been months and months, but he um, had a, at that time, a new a documentary film out about uh, global warming and what they're not telling us, they being the government, uh, that this global warming is sort of a cover story and there's something nefarious that, that they're really trying to cover up, and that is, it's, it's a cataclysmic event that we can do nothing about, he says. Uh, he's going to be with us to give us an update on that, and it has to do with the Gulf Stream. Uh, and what's going on with the Gulf Stream? Well, he'll explain it, but he says it's it's stopped or it's slowing down considerably. And this could have catastrophic effects, which ties into what he was uh, on telling us about the, the last time. All these U.S. government agencies that are surreptitiously moving to higher ground, but they don't tell anybody. It's all hush-hush. John Moore will be with us to tell us about that. All right. I mentioned uh, the uh, 20th. Uh, International UFO Congress coming up in uh, in February. And uh, I also want to mention that our good friend who is uh, sitting across from me, Victor Vigiani, is um, going to be putting on a, a UFO presentation of his own January the 25th at the Toronto Library. Uh, so uh, why don't we get Victor in here to tell us a little bit about that. Victor, welcome once again, my friend. Hello, hello. Good to be with you. Looks like you got a lot going on there, huh? Well, you know, we just got to yeah. cram as much, you know, it's later yeah. than we think. We got to keep cramming the information. That's it's right. condensed. That's this is like, you yeah. know, condensed orange juice. But uh, before we yep. get to our first guest, tell us about this uh, UFO presentation. This well, is a multimedia thing that you do. That's right. Yeah, it's a it's a PowerPoint presentation that I'm going to be presenting at the uh, Jane and Finch Library, uh, 1906 uh, Shepherd Avenue. Uh, this Tuesday, January 25th, beginning at 6.30, running to 7.30. And we're hoping that uh, as many people who are members of the library, or even if you're not, you can call the Toronto Public Library System and register for it. And we're really looking forward to a good turnout. And we're looking at sort of a presentation um, to initialize some of this within the Toronto Public Library System. 
from the point of view of a beginner's perspective on what the UFO phenomenon is all about. And uh, there will be some, uh, I guess, graphic analysis, and we will also begin getting into some of the more political aspects of what the UFO phenomenon uh, really means uh, in a geopolitical sense. So it's the first time that uh, the Toronto Public Library System has opened this up, uh, has opened their doors to us, and we think it's a very significant way of the public finding out exactly what's going on. Is this the um, sort of the same type of presentation that you did uh, for the U of T lecture series a couple of years ago? Very similar, very similar. Yes, I wanted to introduce the phenomenon in a way that would be um, palatable for people who really are not familiar with the research. We're not really talking to people who are sort of died in the wool uh, uh, advocates researchers and and believers so you know so to speak we want to look at education and sort of bringing people's awareness uh, to the forefront who are really not familiar with all of the research because there is a massive amount of research that people aren't aware of at this point so we want to bring that forward in the sort of multimedia way January 25th, the Toronto Library, and what's the uh, the branch? Uh, Jane and Shepherd uh, branch, 1906 uh, Shepherd Avenue West. All right, I'm going to post that on the website, richardserrett.com. Victor Vigiani, Media Director, ExoPolitics. Uh, and uh, what a um, an appropriate location, uh, a library for this kind of stuff, because this information is going mainstream. It's time to get it into the, uh, uh, into the libraries, uh, the U of T lecture series. That was historic. Mm-hmm. So kudos to you, Victor, uh, because you you're also responsible for my education when it comes to UFOs. You were the one who really um, brought me into this whole uh, a field, and um, um, I don't know if it's a blessing or a curse. <laughs> I don't know whether to thank you or to slap you, <laughs> because you know it's once you yeah. go down that hole, you can never you just you can't never get go back. back. Yeah. All right. Uh, again, I mentioned Arizona, the big UFO con- Congress, and uh, Feb 23rd to the 27th, and um, uh, Stanton Friedman will be down there, Don Schmidt, uh, UFO investigators. I'll mm-hmm. be uh, interviewing those gentlemen for an upcoming episode of the TV show. Um, and uh, Roswell, you know, there's so many facets uh, and threads when it comes to uh, the Roswell UFO crash of 1947. And here, I, I said to somebody the other day, I could do probably a show a week just on Roswell, New Mexico. Easily, easily. And, uh, well, here we go again. Uh, we're going to, uh, to get into... We're going to talk about a photograph. We're going to spend an hour, uh, essentially, talking about a photograph. But, oh, what a photograph. Uh, it's, uh, you've probably seen it. It's on the website, the homepage, at richardserrett.com, and it's, it's iconic, really. Uh, you've got uh, two men in uh, in uh, Air Force garb kneeling down and holding what looks like you know some uh, some Reynolds tinfoil uh, in their hands, looking down, sort of jovi, uh, sort of uh, oh, they're kind of laughing. Uh, they they look to be in kind of a good mood, uh, and it's become a, a photograph of the subject of of much uh, speculation and now analysis. And David Rudiak is uh, with us. He is a, uh, a mild-mannered optometrist by day. Uh, the rest of his time, though, he has been doggedly pursuing uh, knowledge uh, and investigating the Roswell UFO crash. And this photograph in particular, he's got a bachelor's in physics and a doctor of optometry, as I say, from the University of California, Berkeley, plus graduate training in biophysics and neurophysiology. He's done scientific research and published papers on brainwave recording to visual stimuli and stimulation of the brain with magnetic stimulators. See, here again, another UFO researchers with a whole pile of letters behind his name. These are credible uh, people. 
And uh, we want to welcome David Rudiak to The Conspiracy Show. Hello, hello, David. How are you? Yeah, hi. Yeah, it was quite an introduction. Thank you. Well, General Roger Ramey holding uh, this piece of paper in his hand as he looks down on this, it uh, looks like a, a tinfoil. This is supposedly the, the weather balloon wreckage, I guess. Uh, right. Uh, the tinfoil is, is from a weather balloon radar target. Uh, these were attached to weather balloons and sent up, and then they bounced radar off of them, and then they could uh, determine wind speed and direction from that. So they said that's what was found at Roswell, and that explained the whole thing. And that was the official story back then. A single weather balloon and a single radar target, which and is just a balsa wood kite covered with this aluminum foil. Now tell me about uh, who this uh, General Roger Ramey uh, was, because uh, he wasn't attached really to the uh, the 509 bomb group, was he? He was from Texas. Well, he, he was... You know, they had a chain of command, and uh, Roswell was his sub-command. So they, it was a bomber wing, and then uh, Ramey himself headed up the 8th Air Force that was stationed in Fort Worth, Texas. So the chain of command was Roswell to Ramey, you know, to up to the Pentagon at that point, or, or to the Strategic Air Command. Was, Ray, was Ramey dispatched to sort of cover up the mess after that initial press release went out that said, you know, a UFO... Uh, well, disc I, mean, been... I mean, there are many theories about that. Uh, I, I think the most credible one was the base public information officer, Walter Hott, who uh, left behind a uh, an interview and also an affidavit f- before he died, in which he said Ramey and the other man in that photo who you were mentioning, who was Brigadier General Thomas DuBose, who was his uh, right-hand man at the time, they both flew out to Roswell that morning. This photo was taken in the afternoon at around 5.30. They flew out to the uh, the base meeting of the senior officers, and Ramey said, we're covering it up. And, uh, and they were discussing the crash sites and passing around the debris and so forth. So I think uh, this, this was all set up ahead of time. They put out the press release uh, to acknowledge that something had happened, and then they said, uh, and then the intelligence officer, who we'll talk about probably, uh, flew it on to higher headquarters. And that turned out an hour later after they put out a press release from the base. That turned out to be General Ramey in Fort Worth. So they shifted the action immediately away from Roswell over to Fort Worth. And then Ramey says, oh, it's just a, a weather balloon. And... Uh, <laughs> And that killed the story. It was very successful. Well, it would have killed the story had uh, General Ramey not been holding a certain piece of paper in his hand, which we'll discuss when we come back. David Rudiak is with us as we discuss this. Well, is it a smoking gun, this Ramey photograph? Victor Vigiani is in studio from Exopolitics Canada. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Stay with us. July 8, 1947. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. Army officers say the missile, found sometime last week, has been inspected at Roswell, New Mexico, and sent to Wright Field, Ohio, for further inspection. Ramey says that so far as can be determined, no one saw the object in the air, and he describes it as being made of some sort of tinfoil. Other Army officials say that further information indicates that the object had a diameter of about 20 to 25 feet, 
and that nothing in the apparent construction indicated any capacity for speed and that there was no evidence of a power plant. The disc also appeared too flimsy to carry a man. Poking holes in the darkness. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To see the light, call Richard now at 416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario at 1-866-740-4740. David Rudiak has been studying, investigating the Roswell UFO crash since about 1994. He's best known for his work on reading the telex the telex photographed in General Roger Ramey's hand as Ramey tried to debunk the Roswell crash as a weather balloon and the photograph, which is iconic, uh, it's uh, there posted on the, uh, the, the homepage at richardserrett.com. Uh, David, my question is, how did you decide to, uh, to, to zero in on the Ramey photograph and say, hey, what is he holding in his hand? Let's blow that up. Let's see if there's anything on there. Well, the, the history probably goes back to 1985 when uh, researcher Brad Sparks took a stab at it. And I wasn't even aware of this, but he, he uh, picked out words like weather balloons, Fort Worth, Tech, Texas, and also the word disc, which was the word for saucer. It was uh, synonymous back then, the flying disc or the flying saucer. Uh, then in 1999, the guy who actually took the photograph, a ph- photographer for the Fort Worth paper named James Bond Johnson, assembled a group, and they took a look at it. Uh, I, <laughs> I don't know if we have time for the whole history. But anyway, uh, one of the readers of that group is uh, Ron Rieger, and he's uh, an engineer. And uh, he picked out the word victims. And, you know, when that, they announced that, that certainly piqued my interest and the interest of a, a number of other people. And so I ordered the... Uh, the negative still exists. It's a four by five press negative, and so there's a tremendous amount of detail on it. And I ordered uh, print blow-ups. I ordered a dark, dark print and a light print, and scanned it in, and you know started taking a try at it. And it's very difficult to to read because it's right down in the you know the letters are down at the level of the film grain. Uh, so it, it took months and months and months to piece it together and figure out a, a way to go at it where I, I wasn't letting my imagination run away with me. So it involved things like doing precise counts of the letters in each word and uh, you know, doing a linguistic approach where you're trying to get sensible readings and you know, one phrase should, should uh, follow into the next and it should make sense in the context of the history at the time. And sort of the iconic image I give is, this, is the victim's word, because you can see several of the letters quite clearly, but some of the other letters aren't very clear. For example, the V is, is pretty clear, or it could be a Y, and then the next letter looks like an I, and then there's another I in there that's pretty clear, and probably an S at the end. And then you can do searches of the English language for seven-letter words with those letters in there, and the only one that comes back that makes any sense is... As victims, uh, for example, you might get, you know, other words that come back are violins and virgins, but when you take 
the fact that it's a military the context. Yeah, the context. Uh, yeah, those the context. It doesn't make any sense. So victims, so you as come in, back with a lot of nonsense words, and the only one that makes sense is victims. So victims, as in victims of the crash, as in victims of the crash or victim. Most of us read it as victims of the wreck, but conceivably, crash would work there too. What other? What are some of the other? Uh, a, a key words or phrases that you were able to identify in the Ramey Well, it, Ramey it photo. says, uh, and the victims of the crash, you, meaning whoever this telegram is addressed to, which I think is the head guy at the Pentagon, General Vandenberg, uh, the victims of the, the wreck you forwarded to somebody, perhaps a team at Fort Worth, Texas, is the way it reads. And then, they, then it goes to the second paragraph, and then it says something in the disc. So that's another key phrase right that right there because it's talking about the crash object referring to it as a disc. This this was the word that Brad Sparks, you know, read clear back in 1985. But the phrase is in the disc and that's very significant because that implies you have some object with some insides to it. And so you can't I mean they were trying to equate this radar target this aluminum foil radar target with this. They had a whole debunkery campaign to do that, but uh, it's just it's just a kite, and a kite doesn't have it's not a three-dimensional object. It's it, just you know balsa wood sticks with sheets of foil paper you know put across the sticks. So there's no insides, there's nothing inside, and I think it reads uh, you know uh, that they're going to ship whatever is inside this disc to somewhere, and I have you know, I have more reading as to what I think they're talking about. But it's this little word in is is highly critical because it's it sort of destroys the idea that the disc was a radar target. So given all of that, David, uh, you know, the, the, the way the memo was constructed, obviously someone actually wrote the memo. Someone penned that. And I'm assuming that it was either Blanchard or Ramey that actually penned the memo. Given well, the, the original the original group that I mentioned that mm-hmm. read this, they, they read the name Temple down there. I see. And I looked at it, and I said, <laughs> who the heck is Temple? Right. And it looked more like Ramey to me. So I okay. was the first to propose that this was Ramey's signature at the bottom. Okay. So this it's, was indeed Ramey's memo. Right. So and then uh, I think the addressee is General Vandenberg at the Pentagon, who the newspapers reported dropped everything and then rushed to the uh, Pentagon press room to call Ramey to supposedly find out what was going on, you okay. know, after this press release came out from the base. Yeah, so my question it, is... It was all, a, as far as I'm concerned, it was all a setup. Yeah, so my question is, given the way this thing was penned, and all the words put together that would, you know, uh, accumulate and, and result in this memo, uh, he had this in his hand, and I guess the, the thing that, I, that I'm grappling with is when you've got a memo written about the fact you've got victims in a, a crash wreck and you've got a disc and you've got all this verbiage in a, in a linguistic and even a morphographic sense, uh, when would he have decided or people above him or beyond him decided, no, we're not going to go with that. We're going to go with the weather balloon explanation. When did that flip take place or do you know? Oh, I if think it, that happened that morning. That's, that's when Ramey, according to Walter Hott, the public information officer at Roswell, when Ramey said we're going to cover it up, Hot said, I, "You know, I don't, I didn't know how they were going to do it, but I think that was counterintelligence was probably working on that." And there had been stories that had come out the day or two prior about a radar target crash up in Ohio, uh, 
And, you know, I was saying, well, maybe this explains the flying discs that everybody are seeing. So I think they said, aha, you know, <laughs> let's go with that. And that, that became the official explanation for the flying saucers. Now, you have to, people may not realize this, but the flying saucer thing was only two weeks old at that point. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it started back on June 24th, 1947, when pilot Kenneth Arnold reported seeing these nine discs shaped objects flying in front of Mount Rainier at, you know, supersonic speed. And then, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, probably thousands of sightings were reported after that, and uh, the Pentagon was being flooded with reports. Yeah, well, it's, so quite, that, it, yeah, it's quite clear that, that Max Brazel is quoted as saying that um, he probably, he did see previously two uh, or possibly three weather balloons actually land on someplace on his property or the Foster Ranch. So this was something that he was relatively fami- familiar with. He had seen the sort of typical weather balloon kind of stuff, and then he was also uh, quoted as saying that this was definitely not a weather balloon uh, type of uh, event that, uh, that, that landed on the ground. It was something very, very different. Well, as you mentioned, Roswell has a thousand facets, and that's another one. Uh, Brazel, Mac Brazel, the rancher who originally reported the crash in all this large debris field at his ranch, uh, he was taken to the newspaper in Roswell, according to witnesses, uh, surrounded by military officers. So this happened after this photo in Ramey's office was taken. It happened that evening. Mm-hmm. Uh, the photo in Ramey's office was about approximately 5.30 Fort Worth time or Central time. And then Brazel was probably interviewed at 7.30 Roswell time, which is central time, so approximately three hours after the photo. It's so amazing. They had, time, they had time to grab him and say, we want you to tell. First he told basically a balloon story, and then as he's, he's quitting, he says, I found two weather balloons prior on my property, right. and this wasn't like any of them. And and one thing I know is it wasn't any weather observation device. All right, hold so on, he David. Contradicted himself. Well, hold on, uh, David. We'll get back on the yeah, okay. on the other side. How uh, how fascinating! A little a little miscue on uh, part of Ramy's uh, or on Ramy's part to hold that telegraph in his hand so that the the actual letters are facing the camera as that picture is snapped. This little snapshot of history and in his hand, perhaps, a smoking gun, the smoking gun, blowing up and analyzing that photograph. What does that telegraph reveal? Perhaps alien bodies recovered at Roswell. Back with more with David Rudiak and Victor Vigiani here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Coming up in about a half an hour, the Liberty Man, John Moore from the Republic uh, Broadcast Network, will uh, give us details on the Gulf Stream. What's going on with the Gulf Stream? Apparently it has stopped. What does that mean? Uh, for all of us. And uh, we'll hearken back to an earlier interview he did with us uh, when he was suggesting that we're not being told uh, the whole truth regarding uh, global warming, that uh, the global warming story is a cover for something, uh, well, cataclysmic, uh, unavoidable, and imminent. Uh, Right now, we are talking with David Rudiak about the General Ramey photograph uh, taken um, after the 
Roswell UFO crash in 1947 and barely noticeable in, uh, in, in this photograph, clutched in General Ramey's left hand is a slip of paper. And probably unwittingly, Ramey had the text side facing towards the camera, allowing the text on this paper to be photographed. And when blown up and analyzed, it tells a remarkably different story of events from the one Ramey or contemporary Air Force counterintelligence wants you to believe. In fact, of course, the subject of the photograph is they're posing with um, this uh, weather balloon uh, target, I guess. Uh, and this is an effort to uh, dispel the, uh, the rumor that uh, it was a UFO crash at uh, Roswell, not a weather balloon. Anyway, David Rudiak is um, uh, here telling us more. Victor Vigiani from Exopolitics is in studio. What do you think, uh, I mean, the, the, the odds, David, that, that, that Ramey would be holding this very telegraph that is the smoking gun as he's attempting to, to cover up the story. I mean, it just, it, it, it boggles the mind. Uh, the, the, well, the debunkers, the debunkers jump in that and say there's no way a military officer would ever do that, which is, I think, circular reasoning. And there's certainly other examples of where military officers of, of you know, let secret slip or even let secret uh, documents be photographed by accident. In fact, uh, there was an example just a year ago where the head of British counterterrorism was walking into Whitehall and he has this, uh, you know, a document written secret on it facing outward and the photographers took a picture of it. And it was about uh, a raid they were planning on a terrorist cell. So that's one example. There's another example during the Johnson administration where his national security advisor allowed the New York Times to photograph a top-secret uh, cover page. And so, I mean, there are other examples where this happens, where people slip up. There, uh, people should know also that there were four photographs of Ramey taken with him holding this piece of paper in his hand, and in three of them he has it the back to the camera. And in one, he, he sort of tilts it forward as if to have a quick look at it, and that's the one that we're talking about, that, that the camera just happened to go off at that moment. And, but in the other three, he was certainly not trying to <laughs> let the camera take a picture of it. My theory is is that there's handwriting at the bottom, and these some aide had written this bat down, and these were responses to what had been in the telegram. This is a copy of the original, and they were making queries to the Pentagon, do you think we should do this? And uh, there were short notes at the bottom, and that's what he was looking at, and that's why he wanted to take a look at it at that moment. I want to go back that, to that, that's uh, my theory of yeah. events. Yeah, I want to go back to Max Brazel for a second. Uh, I mentioned yeah. it just before the break, David. Uh, Max had said that he had uh, he had seen or found two previous examples of weather balloons of some kind landing on his property or his ranch or the Foster Ranch. I'm not sure which one it was, but um, and in both of those incidents, and I keep on looking for uh, inconsistencies in these stories, and they're just sort of they're, this whole story is rife with inconsistencies. Oh, there's numerous inconsistencies right. in the official story. Yeah, yeah. so I guess. Uh, w- 
one of the inconsistencies that I, I would like to focus on is the fact that if Max had actually you know, found or seen or you know, retrieved you know, previous, uh, previously two weather balloons at the time with no reaction at all from any military or any press people anywhere near or close to Corona or, or Roswell, but then all of a sudden this thing lands uh, you know, in the first or second week of July and all of a sudden literally hundreds of military people descend on the area threatening people not to talk about uh, what happened and, and bodies being shipped off in crates to uh, Fort Worth and, and Texas, et cetera, et cetera. Um, d- do you see that as a, as a major uh, inconsistency in the way this thing was handled and, and almost proof positive that something very, very significant happened uh, in July of 1947? Well, the debunkers say nothing like that was reported back then, which is true. You know, it, it only came out many years later when people started to talk. Uh, but there were slip-ups back then. Uh, there, there were major inconsistencies in the story. For example, the head intelligence officer who went out and investigated, you know, Brazel took him back there to the ranch, and he picked up the debris. His name was uh, Jesse Marcel. Mm-hmm. And uh, many years later, he says, well, this was stuff that wasn't from planet Earth. It just had properties of materials that we just don't have. But anyway, he said he was quoted back in 1947 saying the debris was scattered over a square mile. I mean, that was one little slip, you know, that they got out. And uh, instead, they were claiming that it was just this tiny little, you know, weather balloon, one weather balloon and one radar target. That was Ramey's official story. Yeah, four that foot, is in four fact foot what weather is balloon. In the yeah. photo. So it. it, it it went from a square mile, and Mac Brazel said 200 yards across, but a weather balloon went scattered across that distance. And, I mean, he could have picked it up by himself and brought it to Roswell with him. He didn't need to drag Marcel and also the head of counterintelligence back with him. So, obviously, he either showed something in Roswell when he first came there that was of extreme interest, or he described something of extreme interest, a huge debris field or very strange debris. So something drew, you know, that you know, Blanchard, the commander at Roswell, you know, sent his two top intelligence people out there. Now the question is why? I mean, the debunkers don't like to talk about that. Uh, there had to be something extraordinary out there that would have attracted the interest of the people at Roswell. They weren't idiots. I mean. Yeah. <laughs> this was one of their premier air bases. Yeah, well, I had the, the very fortunate experience to, to uh, speak with Loretta Proctor um, several years ago regarding uh, the material itself, and she actually handled the material along with right. a friend, and uh, they made a point of saying that they did everything that they could, uh, the, the friend that was with her at the time, uh, did everything they could to try to cut or drive a nail through this stuff, and they were unsuccessful. And I spoke to her at length about that. And she protested, you know, vehemently about how this whole thing was handled and the fact that she had this stuff in her hands and uh, she actually saw a- an attempt to drive a nail through this stuff and uh, it was unsuccessful. And uh, it, it sort of points to the fact that, you know, if this stuff uh, was in fact, as Richard just said a few minutes ago, you know, Reynolds aluminum, it would have been very easy to cut it and, and drive a nail through it. But she obviously saw something very, very different. Well, what, what her story was is that Brazel, before he even went to Roswell to report this, came to their place. They were like his closest neighbors. Mm-hmm. I mean, by neighbors, she 10 miles away. Uh, <laughs> very sparsely populated, and she said he brought this little piece. It looked sort of wood-like, but, you know, they couldn't 
do any. You know, they tried to cut it with a knife. They tried to whittle it. You know, they it was just ex- excessively hard. They couldn't do anything. They tried to burn it. They couldn't burn it. Now, if this had actually been balsa wood, of course, you could have easily, you could snap it between your fingers. You can easily burn it. David, I can I? Hear, I've never heard her uh, describe trying to drive a nail through this little piece that Brazel brought. No, I, I was referring to the fact that they brought this uh, this material to the uh, to the inn, to the to sort of the, the local bar, and uh, th- that's the place that I visited there also, too, in Corona, where they had it on the bar, and someone actually tried to drive a nail through it at that point, too. Oh, that's so, interesting, yeah. Yes, uh, and uh, I have it on good good, uh, good authority. That's exactly what they tried well, to do. Well, obviously, balsa wood and aluminum foil. That's but right. this was an experimental weather balloon. Don't you guys get it? <laughs> and, and why would Max bring, you know, Loretta Proctor, a piece of balsa wood, over 10 miles, too? David, I want to well, go back to... the bunkers say is everybody's lying or, of or they're just copying everybody else. Story and there's there's uh, I have a whole part of my website devoted to the descriptions of the debris by various people. Uh, for the most famous stuff is is the memory foil. This foil, when you wanted it up, would unfold back to its original shape. And again, you couldn't cut it, you couldn't tear it, you couldn't you know all that stuff. Uh, there's probably. 15 or 20 eyewitnesses to that stuff. Hey, David, back to the telegraph. They're all all copying one another. That's the story. David, if we could go back to the telegraph for a moment. Has anyone ever made a FOIA request on on that document? Uh, I'm not sure that anybody has. Um, I haven't. And the question is, is who do you direct it to? Um, You know, I can't even find where the papers from Fort Worth, you know, all, all their paperwork is stored. Nobody seems to have it in the archives. Uh, you know, when uh, Congressman Schiff, New Mexico Congressman, tried did an inquiry in '94 and had the con- uh, congressional, um, you know, investigative branch look into it, uh, they tried to find the outgoing, you know, message uh, telegrams from Roswell, and they'd been destroyed without authorization. And this is what we keep running into. Uh, I tried to find Ramey's papers, and the only reference, they're supposed to be at Maxwell Air Force Base, but only 48 on. There's nothing for 47 or you know, before that. So that's missing. It's just like the paper trail's been erased. Nobody can find any paper trail on what happened, which is in itself suspicious, because if, if their atomic bomber base puts out a press release that they have a flying saucer, and the whole national press goes berserk and floods the Pentagon with phone calls and there's no inquiry as to what happens you know uh, anything like that if there had been a screw up they couldn't tell a weather balloon or whatever balloon from a flying disc there was going to be some sort of inquiry as to as to what happened how did you know how did such a tremendous botch take place and there's nothing happened. Yeah, it seems the military it was is all buried. They're meticulous. Yeah. Uh, they're meticulous at uh, with paperwork, except when it matters. Uh, I want to. Um, uh, we'll, we'll take another time out. Uh, a number of questions remain. Heck, enough to fill several shows. But uh, yeah, we'll know. we'll make uh, do with the time that we have and uh, continue to explore the Ramey memo or Telex, if you'd like, uh, centering around the Roswell UFO crash. David Rudiak, our guest, his website. Uh, by the by, is www.roswellproof.com, roswellproof.com. Victor Vigiani in studio, Exopolitics Canada. 
more of The Conspiracy Show. Hang in there. Keeping an eye on the new world order, this is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To speak with Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll free 1-866-740-4740. John Moore, the Liberty Man, is standing by to talk about the, uh, the Gulf Stream. Uh, Nelson Thal, our media scientist friend, will uh, drop by at 12.30 via his shoe phone and uh, he'll he has um, he wants to talk about this uh, big police funeral uh, you know you, you can't say it enough what a, tr- a horrible tragedy it was uh, this uh, a police officer uh, run down in the prime of life uh, by a, a snowplow uh, and of course to the, to the survivors but I think many of us were sort of taken aback by the uh, the uh, the nature of the, uh, the the funeral you know you had you had uh, paramedics and firefighters and police people coming into the city from all over North America uh, you know the city uh, shut down downtown practically and the mass media uh, one of the local newspapers uh, it must have been the coverage eight pages deep and uh, there was a report of someone standing there with a sign saying you know people die every day this is a tragedy and that person uh, alleges that he was swept off the street and thrown into a jail. Uh, it's, it, um, it's disturbing. It's disturbing, this spectacle. And, uh, I know Nelson Thal has, um, a few thoughts uh, from the perspective of a media scientist, uh, he'd like to, uh, to lay on us, and that'll happen at 1230. Anthony Carr will be with us just before we dim the lights to talk about this 13th sign that this astronomer, or astrologer, rather, in Minnesota, uh, says that we need to include in the Zodiac because of the, uh, a shift in the Earth's alignment, whatever that means. I think it may have to do with the magnetic North Pole. Anyway, does this mean I'm no longer a Capricorn? I, now? Ref- I refuse not to be a Pisces. I refuse not to be. I will not accept any change. <laughs> well, uh, one of the things that a lot of the mainstream um, articles uh, on this aren't picking up is it doesn't actually affect anyone uh, born before 2008. So... Uh, it's it's really uh, probably well, a, a moot point, but that might include me because people accuse me of being born yesterday. So. <laughs> All right. Well, you might want to stick around for our conversation with Anthony Carr right now. David Rudiak talking about the uh, the General Roger Ramey photograph and that telex he's holding in his hand and what that has revealed. What is uh, does does the the telex say anything about? Um, uh, a, a crash debris, the victims being shipped off to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Ohio, uh, David. Right. Uh, you know, I think maybe the listeners should go to my website, which is roswellproof.com, and then uh, they could go to, uh, and then do a slash, and then fullpage.html. And there I sort of have the whole, you know, telegram laid out with, my interpretation of what's there, and then they can follow a little bit better, I think. So that's roswellproof.com slash fullpage.html. Uh, the, the telegram, let me just sort of give a description of it. There's what I believe is a large black Roswell stamp at the top and a header. What, and the main thing is, is this is addressed to the Pentagon and General Vandenberg, who was in charge. 
of the Army Air Force at the time. And then there's uh, two paragraphs and then Ramey's signature. And the first paragraph, I think, is, is Ramey uh, describing to Vandenberg, this is what's happening now. So it, it talks about finding a disk, you know, the main craft, which we think there was a second site, and then, um, and then that they were forwarding the victims of the wreck to Fort Worth, Texas. And we know of a flight the next day, which we believe uh, was that flight that Ramey is referring to. It's, it's a special B-29 flight, and there are a number of witnesses to this crate being loaded into the B-29 bomb bay and surrounded by an armed guard and then flown to Fort Worth and met by an undertaker. So um, we think that's what's being referred to here. So that's paragraph one. This is what's happening. We just found, you know, the main, the main craft or whatever, and uh, then the victims of the wreck are going to be forwarded to Fort Worth. Then the second paragraph, it starts off with something in the disk, and unfortunately, Ramey's thumb is along the left margin and covering up some of these words. But I think uh, the first word in that paragraph is aviators. That's my best guess. So the aviators in the disc, they will ship for, uh, for the, and this, this is Army E's, is a, A1 8th Army something. I, I think they're talking about shipping it to the flight surgeon at Fort Worth. Okay, for further processing. Mm, an autopsy, and, basically. And then it, it talks about either doing that, I think, by B-29 or a C-47 cargo plane. And then uh, then it goes into, uh, I think, maybe talking about Wright-Patterson, uh, you know, then Wright Airfield uh, would assess the object at Roswell. There's the word Roswell in there that we all agree on. And then uh, it starts talking about how they're going to cover it up. And then it First, it talks about the misstate meaning of story, which I think is the press release from Roswell. You know, it's, it's sort of a little bit of misdirection. And then uh, they talk about the press release of weather balloons that they were about to put out. That, and they did a debunkery campaign afterwards of everything is caused by weather balloons. Uh, it starts talking about the press release of weather balloons and how that might work better if they did photos with it and also followed up with these weather balloon demonstrations. So that's, that's the message. It's first paragraph, this, this is what's happening now. Second paragraph, this is how we're taking care of it. You know, we're shipping the bodies for further processing. Wright Field is going to assess the object, um, and then we're going to cover it up with this weather balloon story and, yeah. and weather balloon demonstration. Yeah, when you, when you look at some of the following information regarding how that crate got actually put into the the B twenty nine bomber, there was a there is some record of the of the crate actually being ostensibly put on another type of aircraft. They had it in a lower bunker, uh, but then they decided to 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 transfer the uh, the crates to another plane. And uh, Pappy Henderson was the individual who flew it eventually to to Wright Patterson. Uh, so you get all of these inconsistencies, as I mentioned earlier, too. And I do want to point out, too, and I, I know, David, you've gone through this with a fine-tooth comb uh, to, to look at it from more of a graphic point of view, and I just want to sort of uh, put a little bit of plug into the amount of work that you actually had to do as an educator myself, having uh, had to read, you know, student papers over a number <laughs> of years, you know, with illegible types of, of, of handwriting. And in, in an effort to, to give the student as many marks as possible, I sat 
and, and on a number of occasions throughout my career and actually going through the essays on full scat paper and trying to ferret through bad penmanship and piece together the context of what the student was trying to write about and you have to give the student the benefit of the doubt so you want to go through every single letter and word on that paper and sometimes it's very difficult to piece it through but when you look at it from a contextual uh, linguistic point of view in one way it's kind of easy and quote unquote to put language together when you've got uh, other pieces of the puzzle that fit the context so I think in, in some ways the work that you did with this I'm not going to say it was easy it wasn't really easy from that point of view but given the context it's not all that difficult to piece together language uh, when you know the meaning and the direction of the of the of the written flow of the information am I am I Right in assuming that? Well, or, or? I, I wouldn't say it was easy, but at the same time, like you say, we, mm-hmm. there's a lot of cues that we have. Exactly. Uh, it's written in English. It's, it's not just random dots on a page. Right. It's not Swahili. Uh, it's a military message. It's, it, it was put out in a certain historical context. And so there, you know, we can, uh, you can deduce things just from that. You know, uh, there's English, rules of English, English spelling. Uh, how many, you know, words, seven-letter words, have start with V and have two I's in these particular positions? So there's there's a lot of restrictions you can put on the possible mm-hmm. readings mm-hmm. by applying the rules of the language. You know, absolutely. If you just try to read it letter by letter, it's hopeless. Right. Just like you're trying to read the student papers, mm-hmm. you can't do it. Yeah. All right, but David, hold on. To look at you know what's the subject matter and sure. you know. And also, you know, just the grammar. If, if, if you see the word the and a telegram, the next word is likely to be a noun. Of course. You know, it's not likely to be an adjective. So. All right, David, hold on. It's, uh, yeah. it's like Rose, the Rosetta Stone, practically. We'll uh, come back. A few uh, comments remain as we discuss the general Roger Ramey photograph and that smoking gun telex grasped in his left hand. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show here on AM 740. My name is Richard Serrett. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM 740. So, uh, David Rudiak, final question from me anyway. Uh, yeah. Is this the smoking gun, this, this Raimi photograph, how important is this... Uh, uh, this uh, piece of evidence to the whole picture, the Roswell investigation? Well, I've called it the smoking gun because it has the words victims and disc in it. Uh, Victims in particular is extremely important because it's talking about casualties or bodies of some kind. Uh, The skeptics will say, well, it's just not clear enough, you know, and they'll dispute every single word that you mention, even though there's pretty strong consensus on a lot of these words. So uh, I think it's a smoking gun. If, if you're skeptical, you, you'll just never accept anything, you know, no matter what sort of evidence is presented. Uh, it's not quite clear enough that I suppose you could say it's, it's not, there's still a lot of ambiguity, and, and that's why people often ignore it. Uh, that, that's about all I can say about it. It's, it's the only real military document that we have about the Roswell incident you know everything else is missing and this is of un, you know indisputable provenance it's held in the hand of general ramey while he's trying 
trying to sell this weather balloon story to the press. Well, I guess just, you know, bring it to a court of law for a second. Yeah. And, you know, if someone's life is is endangered by this or, or at risk because of it, and a, a judge or a jury has to consider the evidence as to how you would put this forward, um, you know, you can take a look at a skeptic's point of view, but then when you take introduce it as evidence in a court of law, um, it doesn't leave much room for interpretation because uh, no matter which way you go, you've you've got those words there, and they only mean one thing. Well, I think so, but they'll dispute that it's even a military telegram or it, it's about Roswell. And I can say, well, everybody agrees the words weather balloons are in there. What mm-hmm. else could it be about except Roswell? Mm-hmm. And, you know, it just goes around and around. It, you can never, uh, you, you can't even, to, to the skeptic, it's not even about Roswell. Or if it is about Roswell, it's not important. Even though Ramey himself was saying that the the matter was classified, highly classified at the mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, I, I don't know what to tell you. I think it's a smoking gun. Other people say, well, the only smoking gun is an actual piece of debris or an alien body, you know, from the Roswell crash. That's a bit harder to produce. <laughs> David? I don't know how to do that. Again, if people want to uh, uh, take a look at this uh, telegraph, uh, they go to roswellproof.com, then they click on, is it full page? Uh, well, there's another page called reconstruct, roswellproof.com slash reconstruct.html, and that'll have a whole bunch of links to images about this telegram, and including a scan of the original print. All right, terrific work, and uh, and thanks for uh, for coming on and explaining. Yeah, thank you for having me on. All right, David Rudiak, and again, the website is roswellproof.com. And uh, Victor Vigiani, always a pleasure. Great to be with you, and just want to remind everyone, if they want to come out on January the 25th, that the, um, the Jane Shepherd Library, 1906 uh, Shepherd Avenue West, uh, I'll be there giving a presentation, and I know uh, it'll be some information that you'll all be um, very interested in. All right. When we come back, what is happening with the Gulf Stream? The Liberty Man, John Moore, will be here to tell us. Stay with us. We deal in illusions, man. None of it is true. But you people sit there day after day, night after night, all ages, colors, creeds. We're all you know. You're beginning to believe the illusions we're spinning here. You're beginning to think that the tube is reality and that your own lives are unreal. You do whatever the tube tells you. You dress like the tube. You ate like the tube. You raise your children like the tube. You even think like the tube. This is mass madness, you maniacs. In God's name, you people are the real thing. We are the illusion. So turn off your television sets. Turn them off now. Turn them off right now. Turn them off and leave them off. Turn them off right in the middle of the sentence I'm speaking to you now. Turn them off. Brainwashed in our childhood. Brainwashed by the school. Brainwashed by our teachers. And brainwashed by all the rules. Brainwashed by our leaders. By our kings and queens. Brainwashed in the open and brainwashed behind the scenes. Love from Toronto, Canada. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. The last time this gentleman was on my show, we were talking about his DVD, Global Warming, What the Government Isn't Telling You. And uh, 
on my show, uh, I guess it's, it's been probably over a year. And uh, so on the show and then also in the DVD, Global Warming, What the Government Isn't Telling You, my guest warns that the Gulf Stream was at risk of stopping. Well, sure enough, it appears that the Gulf Stream has in fact stopped. So what does that mean? What does it mean for us all? Is this something that we need to be paying attention to? Well, John Moore certainly thinks so. He's uh, known as the Liberty Man and has his uh, program on the Republic Broadcasting Network. He's a uh, former Green Beret, and uh, we're happy to have him back on The Conspiracy Show. John, how are you? Richard, good to be here. Thank you very much. All right, take us back to uh, March 2008. Uh, Again, the DVD, Global Warming, What the Government Isn't Telling You. And uh, again, the premise was that the, the whole global warming issue is a cover story. Uh, it's something a little more uh, perhaps palatable for uh, the public to consume, but the idea is that it's hiding from us a far more uh, sinister, uh, 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 yes, a cataclysmic event that's coming our way and that it's imminent. Um, so what is this Gulf Stream? Uh, how does this Gulf Stream uh, 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 impact okay, on all this? It's good to begin you know, just like with good journalism, it's good to assume your audience doesn't know, have a clue what you're talking about. That's a good beginning point, Richard. Um, the Gulf Stream was given its name by Benjamin Franklin back in the uh, late uh, 18th century. Uh, it's warm water that comes out of the Gulf of Mexico and the Caribbean, goes up the east coast of Florida, past Georgia and uh, South Carolina, and when it gets to Cape Hatteras, uh, North Carolina, it starts going east. Up until June 12th of last year, it continued east, where it warmed up England, Ireland, Scotland, uh, split with some going south and warming up Western Europe and the rest going north and warming up Scandinavia. June 12th last year, it quit. It stopped. Now, uh, this is something that will affect all of us the rest of our lives. Uh, Up until I met Dr. Zangari, the Ph.D. scientist from Italy who's spent uh, the last 10 years doing nothing but studying the Gulf Stream. I had no idea how important it was. I thought the Gulf Stream affected the weather on the east coast of the United States and uh, the United Kingdom, Europe, and, and Scandinavia. Here's a quote from Dr. Zangari. The Gulf Stream is the pacemaker of the climate of the planet. And here's the deal. Uh, that water being as large as it is, and, and with the temperature differentiation, it affected and was a regulator of the jet stream, the 200-mile-an-hour winds, five or six miles high above the, above the surface of the Earth. The jet stream, of course, has a large impact on weather uh, as well all over the northern hemisphere. Now that the Gulf Stream has stopped, the jet stream is doing very bizarre and strange things that we've never seen it do before, affecting temperatures and precipitation all over the northern hemisphere in very unpredictable uh, ways that we've never seen in the past. The bottom line for all of us, Richard, uh, it's going to have an adverse, and already is, having an adverse impact on agriculture. You may note, you may have noted that this past fall, Russia refused to honor uh, grain futures contracts that they'd signed to deliver grain, and Ukraine did the same thing. It's not quite, but almost an act of war to do that, by the way. Very serious stuff. 
Uh, we're seeing in the, in the Midwest United States a severe drought that's affecting uh, winter wheat right now. In Australia, because this is a worldwide event, half of Australia is under 10 to 30 feet of water, and the other half, half is having the worst drought they've ever seen. And we're just at the beginning of this, Richard, just at the beginning of very severe impact on food and food production. If you go to the Chicago Board of Trades and look at, at futures prices for grains, you'll see they're going up dramatically just about every day. And uh, we're going to see this at the supermarket in, in the West, here in the United States and Canada. We'll see increased food prices, same thing in Western Europe. In third world countries, these increased prices, like in Tunisia, have already read to, led to riots and the toppling of the government. And the third world is going to take a much bigger hit than uh, Western world and the and, uh, United States and Canada. Although things will get much worse for us, and it could cause our fragile economy to collapse when people discontinue their uh, discretionary spending on sporting events, vacations, going out to restaurants, because they simply have to buy food and very expensive gasoline. So that's where we are, Richard. It's not a good place to be, is it? Uh, no. I mean, we, we're, we're used to, though, at this point, uh, uh, observing strange weather patterns because we've, we've been told that, uh, you know, it's, it's cyclical. And, and uh, you know, we had uh, this uh, freak snowstorm in the U.K. And uh, um, you mentioned here in, uh, in your press release that uh, Charles de Gaulle Airport had to be closed a few weeks ago because right. the snow load on the roof of the main terminal was about to right. collapse the roof. Uh, you know, we, these things tend to wash over our consciousness now because we're so used to these strange weather stories. But, but what would cause what would cause the Gulf Stream just to stop? Do we know? Okay, well, that, that's a great question. I wrote about I wrote about this in my paper. I wrote "No Need for Panic," which was originally published in January 2006. The scientists were telling us then that fresh water was reducing the salinity, fresh water from melting ice in Greenland and the Antarctic was reducing the salinity of the, all the oceans. And it was the salt content of the ocean that was the engine that, that drove this massive body of water. The Gulf Stream was larger than all the, the world's major uh, rivers put together, just a massive body of water uh, flowing from the Caribbean up to uh, the United Kingdom and so forth. Uh, so it was melting freshwater ice, uh, freshwater ice that caused this to become very weak and very fragile. Fast forward to the spring of 2010, and we had the British Petroleum Oil Spill. Now, there's university-level experiments, Richard, where they take a clear tank about 8 by 8 feet and maybe 100 feet long, and they, it's full of fairly cold water, maybe 45, 50-degree water, and they introduce fairly warm water at 75, 80 degrees at the other end, and it will move right through that, that cold water because of the thermal barrier that develops between the cold and the warm water. That's replicating the Gulf, what the Gulf Stream does. Yes, sir. And when you introduce oil into the mix, the thermal barrier between the warm water and the cold water breaks down, and the stream breaks down. So there's, a, there's, some, there's some evidence based on these scientific experiments that the Gulf Stream oil spill broke an already very much fragile and very much at-risk Gulf Stream and caused it to stop. But you were predicting this in your in your DVD back in 2008. Obviously, you weren't foreseeing the BP oil disaster. No, sir. No, sir. The scientists in, the, in uh, 2005, the scientists were saying the following. 
The Gulf Stream is, at, is losing mass and velocity. It's lost 35% of its mass and velocity. It's losing more every year. They were projecting 5 to 20 years in the future it would stop. Now, the, what the British Petroleum Oil Spill did was cause something to happen that may not have happened for another uh, number of years, maybe as many as 15 years. But it, it broke. The, it was a straw that broke the camel's back of a very much at-risk, very fragile Gulf Stream already from the reduced salinity of the oceans due to melting freshwater ice from Greenland and the Antarctic. Keeping in mind that the melting ice in the polar ice and the North Pole is, is floating seawater, sea salt, seawater, sea so it didn't change the salinity or the ocean levels either one. John Moore with the Republic Broadcast Network, the Liberty Man, he's known as, and uh, also the producer of the DVD, Global Warming, What the Government Isn't Telling You, here to tell us that the Gulf Stream has stopped and the, the cataclysmic um, um, events that may follow. How, what's the worst-case scenario? I mean, how long is, is the Gulf Stream uh, going to be uh, in park? And... and Walk us through, uh, you know, the next okay. 5, 10, well, 15 years. That, that, you're right. You're asking a great question here, Richard. I'll give you my flippant, uh, not-so-funny answer, and then I'll give you the, the factual scientific answer. The, the flippant, not-so-funny answer is we should park some aircraft carriers at anchor with the screws facing towards uh, the United Kingdom and get them going. Um, there's, there's, no, there's no man-made way to start the Gulf Stream. According to Dr. Zangari, the Ph.D. scientist in, in uh, Italy, uh, he doesn't believe it will restart. That's his belief based on his 10-year working with the, uh, the Gulf Stream and analyzing all the data. There's no, this has not happened in recorded human history, Richard. So we're really in uncharted territory here. It would be really dandy if it did start. But the two possible scenarios we're looking at right now, one is a mini ice age that lasts 3 to 10 years. This happened, by the way, in the, in the 1780s and was probably responsible for the French Revolution, among other things. The other would be a full-blown ice age that goes on for many decades, possibly for centuries. Uh, that's the two possibilities we're aware of, and uh, the possibility of going back to moderate winters in the United Kingdom, where, and this is true, in, in Ireland, people have their water pipes on the outside of the house. I mean, <laughs> sure. I mean, yeah, they, they, they heat their yeah. homes with these little, uh, you know, they burn peat uh, right. in their little fireplaces, and right. uh, it's damp and it's cold, but uh, it, nothing like what it... Uh, no, a nice, warm, woolly, woolly sweater, you're good to go, yeah. All right, it's pretty bleak is what you're saying. We'll uh, delve further into the Gulf Stream. It stopped, folks. My question, well, I'll get to, to, uh, to this, I guess, when we come back. I'll ask John uh, more, but uh, why isn't this front page news new york times like uh, you know d-day invasion this is this is cataclysmic back with more of the conspiracy show stay with us you're listening to an exclusive podcast of the conspiracy show with richard serrett heard every sunday night from 11 p.m to 1 a.m on zoomer radio the new am 740 so john moore i i'll ask you that question why isn't given the the seriousness of the situation the, the gulf stream has stopped never before in history uh why isn't this front page news why isn't this in the news cycle uh, each and every day why isn't anderson cooper going on about this well, you know why okay here's why um 
unlike myself, when I was in high school, I was rather be on the football field than paying attention in science. Way too many millions of people, Richard, understand the significance of what this means. They paid attention in science in high school and college. They, they know about these matters, and they know the significance and how important this would be if, in fact, they became aware of it. Now, what the government's concerned about is not a panic. Here's what the government's concerned about. Uh, half the jobs in this country are provided by small business, two to three to 100 employees, small business. Many of those business owners are financially independent. They do it. They're, they're, they're running their business because they love it, and, and they've got to do something. Many of whom could lock the door and say, I'm out of here. I'm going to someplace safe, like the Arkansas-Missouri Ozarks, which the Navy has designated as a, as a safe haven. That's what the government's concerned about. That's what they don't want to happen. That's why they're keeping it quiet. Although it's amazing, you know, if you read my paper at my website, Richard, um, the Gulf Stream has stopped. The verifiable mainstream scientific sources, like the United States Navy website, is right there to look at. And anybody can do this. Go to the U.S. Navy website, look at the ocean temperatures. They update their map every 24 hours, and you can see for yourself in a mainstream, scientific, verifiable source that the Gulf Stream has, in fact, stopped. So, no, Richard, they're not going to make this public. They're going so far as to admit that the jet stream is doing bizarre, strange things. They'll go that far, but they won't say why the jet stream is doing the strange thing it's doing. In fact, they're even, I haven't looked it up yet, but they've even given a new name uh, for this jet stream behavior to help people uh, understand it a little bit. They don't want people to have the full truth. They want this, uh, jet, this want this jet stream to be a an anomaly, something that will return to normal. They want people to believe that, and so far they've been quite successful. The uh, again the DVD about global warming and uh, you know what the what well, the, gov- the government was DVD set. Okay. Uh, the the new the second disc is now in the set. Uh, I just finished the final taping of it just a few weeks ago, uh, and. It's a two-DVD two set at my website, thelibertyman.com. So explain then again, uh, as you did the last time you were on the show, why this glo- man-made global warming story has been floated in the public consciousness. What are they... They want, they, want, they, want, they want things to be normal. The powers that be rely on UPS and FedEx, just like you and I do, for spare parts and supplies. They want things to be normal as long as possible, Richard. And and they want they don't want they don't want martial law. They're not looking forward to martial law because that screws them up as much as it screws us up. So, in other words, they 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 need to come up with a cover story to explain why all these weird weather patterns. Uh, but they want it done in such a way as not to uh, to to panic people. Or, or I mean, global yes, warming is I, causing enough of a, of a of a panic. But at least they're saying, well, you know, in fifty years something might happen. Well, in fact, you hit the nail right on the head. Uh, uh, Al Gore's film, An Inconvenient Truth. Uh, what the message he's putting out is directly from NASA. He didn't dream this up himself. What they say is that in the middle of the century, 2050, that's when we need to worry about violent climate change and violently rising ocean levels halfway you know through the century uh, they want to deflect people so far into the future that they won't pay attention to it and i have to admit richard they've been quite successful so far but this isn't a man-made problem or is it 
I mean, it's well, been exasper- it, exacerbated, it, it, but... It's, the British petroleum oil spill is, is obviously a man-made problem on one hand. On the other, it, it caused something to happen a few years sooner than it would have otherwise. Um, so, and people ask me, they say, John, well, they, did they do this intentionally? And as a homicide detective, you know, I live in the world of evidence. I don't have any evidence of it, and I don't know why they would do that intentionally. That it would be pretty strange to do something that bizarre and dangerous to the planet with intent. I mean, it truly would be. You, you, uh, there's, um, no, there's no evidence of it. When you started following this trail, that there was something uh, going on, you you, um, you were noticing that some of these federal uh, U.S. federal agencies were, were bugging out and seeking higher ground. Isn't that how you sort of got into this? Well, th- that was later on. Initially, uh, I was having lunch with a friend of mine. He, uh, We served in the Army together. He got out of the Army and went in the Navy and was in the Navy Submarine Corps. And he was the first of about two dozen submarine veterans I've interviewed who were at classified briefings beginning in 1979 about uh, violently rising ocean levels and abrupt climate change. So the Navy veterans was, were the source of the map that's on my DVD showing new coastlines and the source of much of what I do. They talk to me in confidence. I maintain that confidence. On my new DVD, one of them has agreed to go public, Mr. Tim Spencer, because he was radiated and suffering from radiation poisoning and gets disability. They can't take that away from him. Uh, the rest of these men have a pension that would be at risk if they went public. But Mr. Tim Spencer is on my new uh, DVD, part of the two-DVD set, giving testimony um, in person on the DVD about seeing the map when he was in New Orleans uh, doing classified work for the U.S. Navy. If we are heading into uh, an ice age, uh, you mentioned two scenarios. One, it could be uh, a mini ice age, three to ten years, like the one we had in the late uh, 18th century. Uh, or, and I, I believe that was when the, uh, the canals in Venice froze over. Uh, yeah. Or it could be a, 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 a protracted one uh, lasting perhaps centuries. What's your best information if you were... Well, uh, the, best, the best information is at the NASA Goddard Space Flight Institute. But they're not talking. Um, when I'm on the witness stand and, and, and a lawyer gets me cornered, I would say, uh, well, sir, do you want me to give my sworn speculation? Uh, <laughs> yes, okay. So here's my sworn speculation. Uh, the next three years, um, what we'll be looking for will be, does it get warm in the summertime? Are we seeing the, uh, the snow and the ice remain on the ground uh, a week or two longer each summer? Now, if that starts happening, and we'll know in the spring of 2010, if that starts happening, we're at least into a mini ice age. And if that continues for three or more years uh, to the point where the River Thames is, is uh, frozen over in London, which it hasn't been for more than two centuries, uh, then we're well into a mini ice age. Um, if that goes on, and even then we may not know for another seven or ten years if it's going to be a mini ice age, or if these glaciers start to grow and get and bigger, uh, if the uh, other signs of a full-blown ice age are coming upon us, it may take another seven or ten years before we even know that. All right, let's go to the phones. John is in New Jersey. Uh, uh, good, good morning, John. Welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Yes, good morning, Richard. Thank you for taking my call. Uh, Mr. John Moore, I yes, just sir. purchased your DVD, uh, global warming, and I remember what you said about uh, a large number of military retirees moving to the Ozarks. Yes, sir. Um, 
these past two weeks, the Ozarks were in the news again, and it caught my ear in the large number of thousands of number of bird deaths and fish deaths that happened there. Um, right. Are there is there any connection at all? Well, there's a lot of speculation about, and it's not, of course, not just the Ozarks. What we've had in the past three weeks, John, is bird kills and fish kills and animal kills that typically would happen over three to four years in a very compact period of time. Uh, the first big ones were at the southern end of the Ozarks in, uh, in northern Arkansas. And right now, all we can do is speculate as to the many, there's, there's about three possible reasons. People go, I want to point to harp, which is a possibility. want to point to poisonous gases coming up due to seismic activity or volcanism or, or, or point to the uh, uh, magnetic field of, of the planet changing. And most of the birds and animals dying have, have been the kind that stay in flocks and schools and herds as opposed to independent animals. So uh, there's some bit of truth to all the theories, and so far we're lacking evidence. Thanks for the call, John, in New Jersey. Well, Magnetic uh, North is uh, drifting something like 25 kilometers a year. Uh, in fact, up. Yes, they, just, they just closed Tampa Bay's uh, airport. They had to realign uh, you know, uh, runways and signage to account for that. And right. uh, uh, so th- is, is there a relationship between the Gulf Stream stopping, the jet stream activity, and Magnetic North drifting? Uh, not that I'm aware of, Richard. Not that I'm aware of. Uh, in the general sense of earth changes, they're connected, but there's no cause and effect from one to the other that I'm aware of. What other uh, what other federal agencies uh, have you heard? Uh, you, you mentioned uh, U.S. Plum uh, Island. Plum Island is moving, yes. Yeah. Um, now, Richard, if you and I were going to study really fun stuff like foot and mouth disease and anthrax, wouldn't we put it on a 200-acre island off the coast of, of New York? Of course we would. That's what they did 50 years ago. Now they say they've run out of space. You look at Google Images and see the aerial photograph of Plum Island, it looks like a massive golf course with a few buildings. Hmm. They haven't run out of space, but where are they moving it to? The worst possible place you can think of, Kansas. Right in the breadbasket. Yeah, the most, the most productive agriculture real estate on the planet, Kansas. What an idiotic thing to do. But they're doing it because they have no choice. Plum Island's going to be underwater. Of course they're moving it. Any other U.S.? Uh, what about, I mean, is there a continuing... EPA libraries, plural, three libraries that have the largest English language collection of scientific articles and books on the planet that deal with the things these scientists need to keep us safe. Three years ago, they shut it, all three libraries down, allegedly for cost savings. The General Accountability Office says, no, gentlemen, it costs more to shut these libraries down to keep them open, and their own scientists... Now, Richard, you know, if you file a complaint against your boss, it's like suing your employer. And that's what they did. These scientists, they, they filed grievances against their employers at EPA saying, gentlemen, we can't do our job. You've cut us off from the basic research material to keep America safe. Hmm. How about the library at Manchester, England, a million-book collection? They are shutting down the library for renovation. And this is public uh, record, by the way. They're moving all those million books to mine shafts in England. To mine shafts? Yes, sir. All right, let's go back to the phones. Uh, Sheldon is in Tucson, Arizona. Sheldon, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Well, good evening, Richard. Hey, Hello, uh, Sheldon. Um, Hi there. Hey, I'm actually a friend of John Moore's. Um, 
John, could you uh, tell the audience what me and you uh, uh, know that uh, is causing these Earth changes? Uh, me and you know it's Planet X behind it. Could you elaborate on that? Well, there's, there's a planetary body moving into our solar system. It's also called the 10th planet, which is interacting with our planet. And it's, it's not only responsible for the, these things with the oceans, but seismic activity, volcanism, and so forth. And that's, that's the root cause of all these things. How do they keep uh, – thanks for the call in Tucson, thanks, Sheldon. Sheldon. How do they keep something like that uh, quiet, given the, the number of amateur astronomers that are out there? Uh, how can they hide something like that if, if Planet X is coming this way? Well, the Planet X is, is visible in the infrared light spectrum, which most amateurs don't have that kind of equipment. And you have to be in the extreme southern hemisphere, uh, typically in uh, – either extreme southern Australia or the South Pole or extreme southern Africa and have the right kind of equipment. Um, I think before long, Richard, uh, amateur with good equipment will be able to see it a little bit farther north as it gets deeper into our solar system and comes up closer to where we can see it actually at the equator, even the northern hemisphere. By the time we can see it from the northern hemisphere, uh, these events will be a lot more violent, a lot more frequent volcanism, seismic activity, and uh, really bizarre weather-related events. And, and we're already seeing that speed up. Uh, the number of earthquakes, uh, 4.0 and, and larger, is becoming uh, quite significant. Uh, volcanoes are popping their corks all over the planet, with new volcanoes, by the way, coming up. Uh, and we will see this activity continue to become more frequent and more violent all over the planet. Now, Richard, I know i got uh, just a couple minutes here. Can I put up my toll-free 800 number? Yes, please. That's 800-592-9543. I say again, 800-592-9543. And my new DVD, two-DVD two set, is Global Warming, What the Government Isn't Telling You. All right. Uh, John, thanks for this uh, update on the Gulf Stream. We'll, uh, we'll have You're you... You're welcome, Richard. I'll be in touch. This is important. We need to get the word out. We'll, uh, we'll have you back on in the coming weeks, and we'll do a longer uh, segment. Thanks, sir. All right, okay. John Moore, The Liberty Man, okay, Republic Broadcast Network. When we come back, media scientist Nelson Thal weighs in on this. My gosh, there were tens of thousands of mourners, men and women in uniform, dignitaries, civilians, paying a tribute to the slain Toronto police officer, Sergeant Ryan Russell, last week, and obviously a tragedy. Uh, many are thinking, though, slightly overdone, and uh, Nelson Thal has his theories as to what's really going on. I'm back with more of The Conspiracy Show here on Zuma Radio AM 740. The owners of the system are asleep. Now we can play The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Uh, my good friend, Toronto Sun columnist Michael Corrin, I think nailed it um, with respect to this uh, funeral of Police Sergeant Ryan Russell, which was held in Toronto this week, attended by 12,500 police officers. Uh, Corin writes, grief or glamour, too many teary-eyed folks at cops' funeral just wanted to be on TV. 
People who had never met the 35-year-old officer cried in front of journalists and explained why they made journeys of sometimes more than two hours just to see the poor man's casket. They told stories, often strangely tenuous, of how they felt connected to the target or to the tragedy because of some relative of a relative who was once a cop or something equally contrived. The media covered the day in enormous, sometimes surreal detail, partly because radio stations and newspapers that don't are routinely accused of police bashing. Just the day before the funeral of Sergeant Russell, a 66-year-old woman died from hypothermia on the streets of the same allegedly caring city. She was suffering from dementia and had walked out of her home in the middle of the night in freezing conditions. Once her body experienced the agonizing weather, the confused, broken lady began to scream for help and claw at a nearby car door when she fell over. Some people admitted to hearing her, perhaps even seeing her, but they did not bother to help. So forgive my skepticism, Michael Korn writes, when I argue that Toronto, just like any other city or town in this country, is not compassionate at all, but likes nothing more than soaking itself in the comforting waters of official mourning. Morbid and often misplaced grief has become the ersatz religion of modern times, not just in Canada, but throughout North America. Uh, But I think there's something else uh, at work here uh, with regards to this uh, police funeral and the the massive media coverage. As I say, some newspapers, eight pages deep uh, uh, discussing this. It's almost as if uh, the police services is, it's a cult. Uh, joining uh, us on the line is Nelson Thal, our media scientist friend. Hello, Nelson. Hey, Richard. How are you doing tonight? I'm well, thank you. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, uh, it was quite a show they put on, wasn't it? Well, you and I had a discussion uh, via email and uh, conversations off the air over the last uh, week, and, and uh, you mentioned uh, something that was very interesting, that this was uh, perhaps... Uh, a, a gift, to, not the not the death, uh, but this the, the the opportunity to to to, to put this spectacle on uh, was a way of uh, making us forget about some of the police uh, business that went on during the G20 in this fair town. I don't think there's any doubt that this was a psychological operation. I mean, uh, first of all, off the bat, we have to say, yeah, of course we. Uh, uh, feel for the family and the individual involved, but beyond just you know the the obvious sympathy and we have for him, we have to look beyond that and see what was really going on here because there was a uh, who grieves for Todd Bayless? He was another cop that in the eighties was gunned down, and they never had anything for him. All of a sudden, the timing of this is very suspect, and I think behind it we can see a lot that's going on. Well, you know, uh, again, yes, we have to um, off the top say that uh, the vast majority of of police officers uh, throughout North America uh, take their oath very seriously to to serve and protect, and they care about people, and that's why they they put on the uniform. Uh, But above them, you know, there is this this structure uh, uh, that that I sometimes, uh, you know, it's been described uh, as the, the biggest gang in North America. You know, they're heavily armed, and some of them, quite frankly, when we see these YouTube videos that pop up from time to time, these takedowns, you know, they tackle some kid because he's skateboarding in public, or they taser a pregnant woman, or these, and it's not just, an, uh, one, you know, once in a while, these things are popping up, like, practically every week, there's an article in a paper about some inappropriate tasing or inappropriate takedown, or they are, in some regards, out of control, yeah, and and uh, I think that's what you're saying is interesting. Uh, but you know, um, the at the G20, the brown shirt tactics did impress the leaders, 
but not the public. And it was important to find a psychological operation to sort of uh, um, mitigate that and overcome that. And this was a major psychological operation run by the media and the police. It's just, you know, I mean, it really was. Come and grieve I mean, with us. The interesting yes. thing, Richard, is this. I think we were over-policed. If we can have a day where all the cops get together across North America and have a parade and there's no chaos and no increased crime, I think it shows that we've probably got twice as many police as we really need, and the less police we have, the less crime we're going to have. Well, uh, and imagine the temerity of uh, of uh, our new mayor to suggest that the police department could maybe find five uh, percent uh, in their budget, and the, the 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 police chief said, "No, can't do it. Uh, no. It's like a sacred cow." We've got a lot of guys running desks and paving paper, and we're it's a big bureaucracy, and it's bulging, and it's just too big. We've got too many policemen. Do you think that the police department is a cult? Well, I certainly think that uh, since we stand on the shoulders of giants all the time, JFK, who talked about the secret society being a monolithic uh, conspiracy, ruthless, quote-unquote, and we also stand on the other shoulder of Marshall McLuhan, who said that the arts and sciences are in the pockets of the secret societies. Obviously, the police force, it's obvious you can see, is controlled by the secret society the major secret societies, and McLuhan identified them, Freemasonry, Rosicrucianism, Gnosticism, Popery. McLuhan identified it. The, um, the idea that uh, the, the mass media, uh, yeah. you know, one of the radio stations, a national radio uh, network, uh, broadcasting in-depth half the day, the, one of the daily newspapers, I, I swear the, the coverage went eight pages deep into the... Uh, into the newspaper. What's that all about, Nelson? Well, I mean, the media is all controlled as well from the top down and works hand-in-hand with the police. And look, we have in Canada here a, a man by the name of Woolley who went from being an OPP officer, and now he works as a journalist with City TV. The media, well, he's still a cop. He just changed costumes. But it's very subtle. Well, well, I don't want to cast aspersions on uh, on our good friend Cam Woolley. He's a he's a great guy. But uh, what you're saying is that the, the you know you, you, he's police just a manifestation of it. We're not blaming him. No, no. Uh, and I, I just I also hearken back to uh, to an incident that happened. I guess it's been four or five years. There was uh, a police uh, a mounted police unit, and uh, it was a, a driver. Uh, deliberately drove into, uh, I guess, in an attempt to take the officer down, but he hit the horse out from under him. The horse had to be put down yeah. or was killed uh, at, the, at the scene. And they actually held in this city. I remember I was at another radio station and uh, I was pr- producing a morning show and I was sort of on the air quite a bit. And um, the, the first thing I thought of, it went, they were holding a funeral for this uh, for this horse and again people came from all over the province yeah. and showed up i think it was held down at the rico center they were having a memorial for this horse which is you know i, I love animals and i love horses they're beautiful creatures but essentially it's livestock and people were calling into this talk show that i was producing saying that the person who did this should be charged with with murder because this is no different than taking down a police officer and i thought my gosh what if we, what has it come to it's the same that you can't even attack a police horse <laughs> Exactly. I mean, well, this is the um, this is the the uh, this is the super fascist state that's evolved under the tribal electric conditions, 
you know. Left. I don't know about super fascist. I mean, I think soft totalitarianism maybe. It's sort of creeping. But the idea that, uh, you know, uh, you must you must grieve for one of our fallen brothers, a horse, yeah. uh, and to hold a funeral. And for people, people were driving from hundreds of miles away to attend this memorial. And I thought the first thing I said on the microphone, yeah. and I took heat for this, uh, was, uh, you know who holds funerals for pets? Children. Because they're at that, you know, children, uh, they're, they're, their undeveloped minds aren't able to sort of separate, you know, uh, between uh, an, an animal, a pet, and a human being. Yeah. And yet we had the police force, and we had, I just thought it was perverse. Well, you know, mass media has been covering up state terrorism all along with Bush and Khomeini, Reagan and Iran-Contra, uh, Clinton and al-Qaeda, et cetera, et cetera, right? I mean, the reason, Rich, that the president seems aged so quickly is what we're being told, is that because um, they, uh, they have to sign off in advance of the next terrorist act. Yeah, they they know things in advance, and there's nothing right. they can do about it. So they're just following Obama the script. Yeah, that would age anybody. Bush Nelson knew listen. about 9/11 in advance. Obama knew about Arizona in advance. All right, we got to uh, to fly on that note. And uh, Nelson, always a pleasure. Uh, you can listen to uh, Nelson's show on. Um, uh, yeah, we have we have. I've got uh, Tom Hennigan on. Uh, talking about the WikiLeaks and uh, what the effect of the WikiLeaks will be on the intelligence agencies. That's Shock Talk with Bloom and Steel. Yeah, at bloomandsteel.com. All right, Nelson, always Thanks a pleasure. Talk soon. Bye-bye. Anthony Carr, the 13th sign the Zodiac, next. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. So, what's all this hype about the stars? Since last Monday... Uh, Everyone's been uh, talking and tweeting about a new 13th zodiac sign, Ophiuchus, which has pushed everyone out of their sign group and into a new one. For example, I was born Jan 12, which would make me a Capricorn. But according to this this new uh, uh, chart, because they had to insert a, a new sign, I am now, I believe, a Sagittarius. So... A lot of people who uh, their identities are, uh, are wrapped up in the Zodiac are a little perturbed, to say the least. Uh, one one uh, day you wake up and you're a Pisces, and then the next day you're uh, you're an Aries. So here to, uh, to try and make sense of all this is uh, the world's most documented psychic, and he knows a thing or two about uh, astrology as well. He, of course, uh, predicted 9-11, the murder of John Paul I, the, the finding and raising of the Titanic, the election of a German pope. Uh, goes on and on and on, and of course, every year he comes out with his much-anticipated uh, book, the Stargazer Prediction Series, and of course, Stargazer Predictions 2011, now available uh, to book buyers, and I am, of, of course, referring to the one and only Anthony Carr. Hello, Anthony, how are you? Well, hi, Richard. That was uh, quite an introduction there. I How do I respond to that, but except I... Uh, an old sh- uh, oh shucks! <laughs> <laughs> All right, hey, you're, you're just saying that because it's true. <laughs> you resemble that remark. I yes. resemble that. Do you resent it? No, but I resemble it. So, and anyway, what I, is this thirteenth uh, sign? Ophiuchus. Uh, is that how you pronounce it? Ophiuchus. Well, you know, be be careful how you pronounce that. It's pretty close to uh, 
Yes, it's, scandalous. it's, it's uh, <laughs> one of George Carlin's seven words. Seven, and I suppose that's probably the best way to remember it, since any new language we learn, we always seem to learn the swear words first, right? That's true. So, Ophiuchus to you, too. <laughs> All right, so where did, this, where did this sign come from? Well, actually, it's been around, it's been around forever, of course, you know, as, as the universe has. And uh, you know, I've known about it for about uh, 20 years. Uh, most astrologers have. But they've really not paid it any mind. Uh, I mean, some some astronomer looking to make a name for himself decided, well, you know, let's add uh, let's add a certain to to the slice of pie to the pie. If you cut it in twelve pieces, which are the houses of the zodiac, you know, and I'm a kind of a guy who believes in balance. If you add a thirteen to it, it kind of upsets the apple cart. And um, and we're still looking for two planets actually to fill out the other t- two signs of the twelve signs of the zodiac. As you know, or as you may or may not know, uh, Venus rules both uh, the sign of Libra and Taurus. And uh, so Mercury. they have to share a planet. They're the poor brothers. They have to share They're one the planet. Poor. That's right. That's <laughs> that's right. I call them the Cabbage Town brothers. <laughs> so anyway, and and Mercury, of course, uh, also rules um, uh, Virgo and rules Gemini. So in theory, there are two more planets out there that we have to discover, although we seem to be discovering new planets all the time, that have to come into play to take the place of uh, one of the two uh, um, signs which are uh, co-ruled by those two planets I just mentioned. Okay. Now, for instance, um, uh, Pluto, which was discovered in 1930, um, now rules the sign of Scorpio, but before that, uh, Mars ruled both Aries and Scorpio. Now it just may, it just may rules uh, with uh, just so rules, they subcontracted uh, out to yes, the exactly. And of course, with the discovery of Pluto came in, it ushered in the atomic age. So with the discovery of each new planet or each new zodiac, in this case, uh, it begins a whole new process, a whole new uh, sense of sense of existence. Now, it's tough enough. When you discover a new planet for a, for a sign to figure out what that planet with regard to that sign means, so for instance, you're a Capricorn. We know Capricorns are hard workers. They like to accomplish great things. They be quite ruthless in in business, uh, like a smoldering volcano, you know. But uh, kind of soft and jelly in the inside as well. And they're your ruling planet. And since you are uh, since you are Richard, uh, a Capricorn. Uh, the the symbol is uh, the goat, the animal, and the glyph is uh, that thing that looks like an H, the letter H, and you're really implanted as Saturn. And Saturn is uh, kind of a hard a hard taskmaster, it's a hard ruler, and so we know all these things after eons of studying. And uh, Except that all goes out the window now, Anthony, because according, they've inserted Ophiuchus uh, November 29th to December 17th, Right. which pushes Sagittarius into Jan 20th. So that means I'm now Sagittarius. Right, and since I fall by nature, my own birthday is December the 6th, so I'm right there. I'm actually a Ophiuchus, <laughs> or an Ophiuchian. So what are the, what are the, what are the supposed well, well, attributes? As I, was, as I was trying to explain to you, never mind discovering a new planet to fill in the two missing signs that I already mentioned to you, uh, Libra and, and Gemini, or other. We don't even have uh, we don't we have no idea of what the characteristic traits would be for uh, Ophiuchus, uh, a, a constellation, much less uh, a planet that we still have to discover to uh, relate to it. That we can say your ruling planet is well, we don't even know that. Not only that, 
nobody has ever come up with any statistics what Ophiuchus would mean. And what I've what I've um, what I've discovered uh, through talking to, to uh, other astrologers, especially uh, Robin Armstrong, who's really probably the uh, the last word, the uh, real authority on astrology in Canada. I mean, the guy went to India and lived in a cave for two years and studied. I mean, this guy lives, eats, breathes uh, astrology. And he says, and I'm of the same opinion, you really shouldn't pay any mind to it at all because it doesn't have any bearing. Uh, the the constellation of uh, Ophiuchus, and you can be careful you say that, is the uh, right next to uh, the constellation of Scorpio on the one side and, uh, of course, Sagittarius on the other. And the, the, the club, the club, of um, of, uh, of uh, Orpheus is uh, well the symbol the symbol of Orpheus or the image is of uh, of a guy uh, standing there with a, a large snake between his legs a snake grasper I think they call it the snake, snake grasper. grasper and actually if you look at the constellation he kind of he's kind of straddling the snake and he has uh, one or two hands on it. And enough said on that one. Right. And uh, he is supposed to be you know, known as the, the evil magician, and he wants power to conquer the world and all that kind of thing. So, so you're saying basically disregard it, that we should just stick with the 12 signs. But why? my understanding is that this started at a Minnesota TV station, and there was this Minnesota astronomer, Park Kunkel, and he said that due to some shift in the Earth's alignment, they had to change and add this new sign. What do they mean by a change in the, in the Earth's alignment? Well, well, you know the the Earth rotates uh, uh, at what twenty three and a quarter degrees uh, on its axis when it, when it rotates uh, the twenty four hour cycle, and there's a wobble there's a wobble effect at the uh, at the middle. It's like a top that slows down, and the theory is that uh, that wobble effect causes the Earth to shift its position on the axis, and therefore uh, maybe changing its position. In, in the universe or in our solar system. Now, whether that is actually a fact or not, nobody knows for sure. But all I know is that uh, when I do charts for people, uh, if I do your chart, if I do my chart, and I look at it today, it doesn't seem to make any difference. The planets still, for instance, today I had a difficult day with lady drivers, and I had uh, communication problems, especially getting here to do your show on time. And that was Mercury was squaring the moon. And that is the moon represents women, and Mercury represents communications. The squares are not very nice. So whether I'm an Ophiuchus or I'm not, all I know is as a Sagittarian, and where my planets are as a Sagittarian, they work perfectly. And the chart I did today for an Aries person, it works perfectly for him. And I'm quite certain if I do your chart this year again, and uh, anyone else... It's not going to change anything, and I really don't think or suggest that anyone worry at this point what some astronomer in another country says. Uh, where's this guy from, by the way? Um, Minnesota. His name Minnesota. is Park Kunkel. Well, that, that's our twin city, isn't it? Or we're Toronto's twin with Minnesota. Well, it's uh, it's cold there too, so uh, it <laughs> makes his perfect name sense. Again, uh, his name was Park Kunkel. Park Kunkel. K-U-N-K-L-E, Minnesota Astronomer. Okay. Now, is now, this like, I mean, what else are you hearing out there? Is, there? is this going to cause some sort of a schism between astrologers? Do you, are you going to have those that operate on the 13th sign zodiac and those that operate on the 12th? How could you pause? Even if, even if there are any truth to this, 
uh, certainly, I mean, as far as influencing, uh, as far as influencing people and, and, and mixing them up as far as their birth signs, it would take eons, it would take decades and decades to gathering empirical data to figure out what, what the significance of it is. Nobody knows. You can't just say, suddenly I'm a, I'm a, you know, an Ophiuchus or I'm, I'm an Ophiuchian because They'll say, well, describe it. Well, how are you going to describe it? There's no uh, Right, no we don't know what the attributes are. There's no planet to represent it. Nobody knows what the, you know, as they say, it's a Capricorn. I know what you are, and I know what Capricorn means. I know your characteristics. But no one has put out any information, and it will take a half a century or even a century before. That's the way astrology evolves. You know, one person studies it for years and years and passes his information down to a, down the chain to someone other link, and it goes on. It takes forever. It takes 100 years before anything at all would evolve out of this. And I have, uh, I have the moon and I, I have Venus and Libra, and it would take uh, anything that upsets the apple cart that's not even like that. And to me, the system, there are very, there are very uh, numerous uh, schools of, um, of astrology. There's the Placidian school of astrology, where one, one house is bigger than another. Some has 48 degrees, another has only 16. I, um, I I aspire to the uh, uh, embrace the equal house. Everything is divided equally in degrees of thirty degrees. Everything is equal, or it's the yin and yang. And the I don't think throwing in a thirteenth uh, uh, constellation or thirteenth sign would uh, do anything to enhance uh, our sense of ourselves at this point. I really don't think that anyone uh, anyone should uh, worry about this at all. It's not going to make any difference at all. Now, I mean. Strictly speaking, and mathematically speaking, they say nothing is more precise than mathematics. But who's to say, who's even to say that our system of mathematics, no matter how uh, involved, intricate, and uh, complicated, is could be quite primitive, primitive by another civilization's uh, sense of mathematics, as you and I both believe that uh, you know extraterrestrials came to this planet. 400, 500,000 years ago and kick-started the human race, they may have a whole different system of mathematics that would make absolutely no sense to us. Anthony Carr is with us, the most documented, the world's most documented psychic, and his uh, his book, Stargazer Predictions 2011, uh, is now available. How do people get a hold of that book, Anthony? Well, I, uh, it's... it's uh, uh, who's printing it is uh, ECW Publishing, ECW Press. And I suppose if you go on my website and look it up, you can uh, order it there or put in a request through my uh, my email address, which is, uh, what is it, the info at anthonycarpsychic.com. All right. Um, I, I, doing the other thing about Ophi, Ophiuchus is um, uh, considering the times, the dangerous times in which we live, you know, he was, as I had mentioned, he was considered to be uh, like a poisonous and dangerous to mankind. So, and, he, and given an association to a saint, or Satan was also a star traveler, Saint Nail, as uh, the Book of Enoch refers to him, and it definitely uh, has uh, an evil influence. So, I wouldn't want to be associated too closely with Ophiuchus, because uh, uh, the uh, terms uh, for that uh, constellation are uh, like the hand of evil, the man of death, the head of evil. The serpent bitten and the uh, the calculating magician. Well, the Babylonians knew about um, Ophiuchus. Um, did, did they simply discard it because they got they got sort of suspicious about having thirteen signs versus twelve? Exactly. It's the uh, the it's the trustedecophobia syndrome. 
So, uh, you know, there are many uh, origins of, uh, of the fear of the number 13. Of course, uh, the, the, the Jesus' 12 disciples and and uh, whoever was the 13th was what, Judas? Um, um, yeah. Or 13 at the, at the Last Supper, from what I understand, if I remember correctly. And um, what, the 13... 13 is associated with the tarot, the tarot card uh, death, of course. Uh, it, it's associated with 3 and 1 is 4 numerologically. That's in the numerology that represents uh, the fourth house, which is also the end of, uh, end of life. Um, so uh, for, you're quite accurate in uh, suggesting that uh, uh, the number 13 has always been... Uh, uh, an anthem to mankind uh, since the beginning of time. Okay, listen, so Anthony, I guess the final word here is uh, in, in terms of uh, uh, your zodiac, just, you know, continue to follow your sign and uh, just disregard... I, and my, and my, my, my psychic feeling is it just... It, 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 does, it does not apply. It would just upset the apple cart. Um... You know, I mean, Ophiuchus, he, he stands on the back of Scorpion, the, the preceding sign, and uh, piggybacks kind of in the same section of the... He's kind of a symbiotic, uh, a kind of a leech constellation or a, a leech uh, figure. So I, I you know, it, don't... I would not worry. Don't put any stock in it. Stay with the 12 signs. Don't worry. And if anything comes of this, it would take, as they say, uh, hundreds of years before uh, anything could be gleaned or leached out of uh, what this constellation would mean to mankind. If anybody, I mean, Got study it. me, because I was born December the 6th. I'm right in the first decade of Ophiuchus, so whatever happens to me is probably the way the world's going to go. You will be our barometer, will, as always. And don't forget, my rising sign is zero degrees Aries. So I go with the very first degree, a very first sign of the zodiac. So I'm a barometer pretty well for the long as I'm around. Don't worry. When I disappear from the scene, then watch for the countdown arm again to really begin. And when the hour hand of 12 hits the doomsday clock and boom, then we're off to the races. Anthony Carr, always a pleasure. How and do you like me so far? Uh, loving you. <laughs> loving you as always. AnthonyCarrPsychic.com. We'll talk soon, Anthony. And don't forget what I said. Mountains in the background for you. And a lot of opera, because you have that Pluto going through Capricorn, your sign now. So it confers mighty power and accomplishments uh, for the next another 10 years yet. Looking forward to that. Thank you. That'll be 500 bucks, please. <laughs> Checks in the mail. <laughs> Anthony Carr. See you later. Bye-bye. Bye. All right. Well, Pluto is going through Capricorn. And uh, who asked Pluto to come through my sign? I, didn't, uh, I don't remember extending an invitation. However, apparently that's a good thing. Uh, Anthony Carr, my thanks to, uh, to you, also to uh, John Moore, the Liberty Man from Republic Broadcast Network, Nelson Thal, our media scientist friend, for those uh, words. Uh, also to uh, Victor Vigiani, of course, and David Rudiak talking about the Roger Ramey photo at Roswell. Uh, back next week, Joel Skousen from World Affairs Brief will be here and some uh, special treats. Hey, don't forget, get out to, the, uh, the, to Conspiracy Culture. Friday, Jan 28th, I'll be signing uh, CDs, my new CD, Strange Planet Volume 2. If you want to attend, register at conspiracyculture.com or just give Patrick a call, 416-916-1696. I hope I have that right. Did I invert those numbers? Anyway, the the number is on the website, conspiracyculture.com. CD signing, Friday, Jan 28th. 7 to 9 p.m., 1696 Queen Street West. Hope to see you there. Dan Ellison, thank you. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home.
This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.